freedom fighters, freedom lovers, and those who just want stuff for free. I'm Mr. Palumbo, and welcome to the Professor Liberty Podcast. This is a place where we don't see color, unless it's red, white, and blue. We don't see race. We love America, and we aren't afraid to put Marxism in its place. Which is the trash bin, by the way, if you were wondering. Uh, uh, Mr. Palumbo, uh, you know, you're so rude, Mr. Palumbo. You, you think you know everything, Mr. Palumbo. Just because you disagree with something doesn't automatically make it false. Well, that's true, actually. That's, that's very, uh, very astute of you to see that. But I'm not basing my view of Marxism squarely on opinion. Or what good intention it might have had. No, I'm looking at the facts. Historical facts. Everywhere Marxism has tried or Marxist ideology has been implemented, only poverty, division, destruction, chaos has followed. It could be because Karl Marx himself was a miserable, atheistic nihilist who wanted to tear down society and remake it in his twisted image. And any time extreme Marxism has overtaken a country, doesn't it do just that? Completely tear down the society? Anyways, folks, welcome to the show. Thank you for tuning in. Please don't uh, forget to give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. I've noticed that the ratings have gone up, so I really appreciate that. That's kind of how you get traction nowadays. You got to have a lot of ratings. Um And once you do that, I'm going to ask you to also talk about this podcast with your friends, your family, your uncles, your communist cousins. Unless you hate the podcast, then then don't say anything about it. For those of you hardcore Professor Liberty followers, all five of you out there, I'm I'm sure you're wondering, Mr. Palumbo, where was Wednesday's episode? I'm sorry, folks. Uh, This is the end of the year, so we had a lot of... uh, things to do, a lot of uh, ducks to get into order. And so graduation was today and things were happening yesterday. So I really, I apologize. Um, And I also have to say that Monday there will also be no episode uh, because I will be out of town. So this episode, the Friday episode, is going to be great. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be, I don't know what else to say, but I appreciate you tuning in. Today's Friday, so we're going to continue our series called The First Americans. And we're going to analyze the Shoshone and the Nez Pierce. Now, geographically, these two tribes were neighbors. The Nez Pierce resided in the Columbia River Plateau otherwise known as the Northeast. So think Idaho, Oregon, and Washington area. The Shoshone came from the Great Basin area, which is a large, a basin in geography is, is kind of like this large bowl. And it's where all the land, uh, all the streams drain into this area. Okay. So most of all of Nevada, the state of Nevada is in what is known as the Great Basin but also the bordering states can be included. So the Great Basin encompasses almost, like I said, the entire state of Nevada, but portions of Idaho and Utah as well. Some fascinating individuals come from both the Nez Pierce and the Shoshone, and we'll get to that shortly. 
And it's too bad that these individuals are not studied more in school. Another neat relationship between these two groups is they each had their own encounter and influence with the Lewis and Clark expedition. So let's start with the Shoshone. The word Shoshone means people of the valley. And most of the Shoshone people lived next to the Snake River in Idaho. These are often called Northern Shoshone. There are also Western Shoshone and Eastern Shoshone. The Shoshone were a relatively small group, ranging from about four to 5,000. Conflict with other native groups, such as the Blackfoot and the Crow, caused some of the Shoshone to move as far east as Texas. This is why most historians believe that the Comanche have Shoshone roots. Like all other native groups, the Shoshone had a difficult time with the constant influx of European-American settlers. Because they resided in the Idaho-Utah area, they had a lot of contact with Mormon. It was Mormon policy to be friendly towards the natives. However, as travelers and other settlers continued to move into the area, they began hunting and eating all the game, driving the Shoshone to near starvation. This drove the Shoshone to raid farms and ranches, not just as a means for revenge, but also in a desperate attempt to survive. This constant conflict would lead to what is known as the Bear Creek Massacre, which occurred on January 29, 1863. Utah History Encyclopedia writes it this way, the Shoshone had watched uneasily as Mormon farmers had moved into the Indian home of Cache Valley in the spring of 1860, and now three years later had appropriated all the land and water of the Verdant Mountain Valley. The young men of the tribe had struck back at the white settlers. This prompted Utah to territorial officials to call on Connor's troops, that's the commander of the U.S. Cavalry, to punish the Northeastern Band. Before the colonel led his men from Camp Douglas in Salt Lake City, north of Bear River, he announced that he had no intention to take prisoners. As the troops approached the Indian camp early in the morning of, at 6 a.m., they found the Shoshone warriors entrenched behind a 10-foot eastern embankment on Beaver Creek, afterwards called Battle Creek. The volunteers suffered most of their 23 casualties in their first charge across the open plain in front of the Shoshone village. Colonel Connor soon changed tactics, which resulted in a complete envelopment of the Shoshone camp by soldiers who began firing on Indian men, women, and children indiscriminately. By 8 a.m., the Indian men were all out of ammunition, and the last two hours of the battle became a massacre as the soldiers used their revolvers to shoot down all the Indians they could find in the dense willows of the camp. Approximately 250 Shoshone were slain, including 90 women and children. After the slaughter ended, some of the undisciplined soldiers went through the Indian village, 
raping women and using axes to bash in the heads of women and children who were already dying of wounds. Chief Bear Hunter was killed along with Subchief Lehi. The troops burned the 75 Indian lodges, recovered 1,000 bushels of wheat and flour, and appropriated the 175 Shoshone horses. While the troops cared for their wounded and took their dead back to Camp Douglas for burial, the Indian bodies were left in the field for the wolves and the crows. Unquote. Well, this is just disgusting and despicable behavior, boys and girls. And there's no defending it. There's no trying to put a positive spin on it. You remember in the first episode of The First Americans, we talked about genocide. And we talked about how genocide needs to be uh, within the definition, right? We can't just go around calling something genocide unless it fits. Well, this is genocide. If you remember, uh, genocide is the explicit killing of a certain people group. And it's often state-sponsored, okay? Well, who do the cavalry work for? The cavalry work for the United States government. And Colonel Connor said he he had no plans on taking prisoners. So this was not an act of war. This was not uh, a battle. This was going in and uh, killing these people, women, children, everybody. Uh, so this was a this would be a clear example of genocide in my mind. The Bear Creek Massacre also brings to light again what we talked about in the first part of the series regarding a clash of worldviews, this endless cycle of violence. The Shoshone were raiding farms and stealing food, which I'm sure whites were killed in the process, because of their resources they didn't have any. And, it, and the whites were taking all of the food, so they needed to survive, so they lashed out. Well, then white people saw this violence, and then they lashed out at the Indians, right? Uh, and unfortunately, as we've discussed, whites had bigger guns. In history, the victors are often the ones with the bigger guns. That's just a fact. I don't want to end the discussion of the Shoshone on this miserable note, uh, you know, no history of a people surrounds, uh, centers on a disaster. Okay, we, this is something we got to get away from in, in our current thinking, right? We, we're, so, we're so consumed with being victims that we, this, this, this terrible thing that happened to me is who I am. That is crap. It is not who you are. And this is not who the Shoshone are. And I'm going to show you that here in a second. So no history of a people centers around disaster. It centers around their character. And the Shoshone, though small, and even though they were mistreated by the U.S. government, one individual represented them with honor and distinction. And that person is no other than Sacagawea. Sacagawea was born around 1787 or 88, depending on the sources and she was born in Idaho. Her name means either boat puller or bird woman, depending on how you spell it. Uh, I think most people prefer the bird woman version. 
when she was very young, she was captured by other natives who were the enemies of the Shoshone and sold to French trappers. This is where she's going to meet a guy named Charbonneau. Uh, and Charbonneau is going to make her his wife when she's age 12. Gross. Talk about cradle robbing. We all know that Sacagawea was instrumental in helping the Lewis and Clark expedition, which was tasked with uh, exploring the newly purchased Louisiana Territory by President Jefferson in 1804. Biography.com explains it this way. Lewis and Clark met Charbonneau and quickly hired him to serve as an interpreter on their expedition. Even though she was pregnant with her first child, Sacagawea was chosen to accompany them on their mission. Lewis and Clark believed that her knowledge of the Shoshone language would help them later in their journey. In February 1805, Sacagawea gave birth to a son named John Baptiste Charbonneau. Despite traveling with a newborn during the trek, Sacagawea proved to be helpful in many ways. She was skilled at finding edible plants. When a boat capsized that she was riding in, she was able to save the cargo, including important documents and supplies. She also served as a symbol of peace. A group traveling with a woman and child were treated with less suspicion than a group of men alone, unquote. Sacagawea's presence, influence, and assistance made Lewis and Clark's expedition a success. And unfortunately, she was never fully appreciated during her lifetime for what she did. She helped cook, mend wounds, navigate, translate, identify edible foods, even barter and trade for horses and supplies. And she was a teenage woman with a child. I mean, I just love this story. I mean, the fortitude and the, and the toughness of Sacagawea is, 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 I just love that. I mean, she had to take care of all these boneheaded guys, and she was with child the whole time. I mean, you know, the, the women, folks, men, we, we need the women. They, they, keep us, they keep us on the straight and narrow, and without them, we would not survive. She died young, and her death is shrouded in mystery. But her legacy as a trailblazer lives in the annals of American history. Her image on the dollar coin first minted in 2000, in my mind, still shows the staying power of her achievements in the minds of Americans. Did you know originally the Statue of Liberty was supposed to be the lady on the coin? But even Lady Liberty couldn't win out, and the bird lady of the Shoshone actually won the day. Sacagawea joins only Susan B. Anthony as the only other woman on U.S. dollars. Now, Helen Keller and some other women have been portrayed on quarters, but only these two women have been on dollars. Fun fact, Martha Washington is the only woman whose image has been on U.S. paper currency. Pretty neat stuff. Okay, let's talk about the Ness Pierce. The Ness Pierce get their name from the French meaning pierced nose. But they called themselves, oh boy, I'm going to get this wrong, the, Nim, the Nimpu, the Nimpu, which means the people. They occupied parts of Oregon, Idaho, and Montana. 
The Nez Pierce were semi-nomadic and adopted many customs of the Plains Indians. They had two types of shelter. This is kind of neat. The pit house, which was a cave-like dwelling underground for the winter months. And then they lived in teepees for the hot summer months. The Nez Pierce also built canoes called a dugout canoe. A dugout canoe is a large log that is hollowed out and fashioned into a canoe. They would use controlled fire to soften the wood and then carefully chip away at the log until it had a flat bottom and straight sides. The Nez Pierce gave some of these dugout canoes to Lewis and Clark, which allowed them to travel quickly down the river into what is now Washington State. Although the Nez Pierce had a reputation for being friendly, they also found themselves in armed conflict with the U.S. government in what became known as the Ness Pierce War of 1877. According to the U.S. Army's own website, army.mil, quote, Throughout the summer and early fall of 1877, the fighting skill of the Ness Pierce warriors and the military tactics of the Ness Pierce military leaders, such as Chief Looking Glass and Chief White Bird, enabled the Ness Pierce to invade almost certain defeat by superior U.S. Army forces. The Ness Pierce strength during the 1877 war was estimated to be only a few hundred warriors. They had no formal military training and traveled with many non-combatants. The Army, however, would use several thousand soldiers during the 1877 Ness Pierce campaign. These were commanded by veterans of the Civil War with years of military service and training. Unquote. The Nez Pierce and the Army would engage several times as the Nez Pierce traveled from their homeland uh, through Montana and Idaho with their goal of Canada. By October 1877, however, approaching winter, lack of supplies, and the effects of traveling more than 1,500 miles over rough western territory began to take its toll. The last engagement between the Nez Pierce and the Army was fought at Bear Paw Mountain in the Montana Territory. This battle took place between September 30 and October 5, 1877. It was after Bear Paw Mountain, when fighting seemed futile, that Chief Joseph surrendered his remaining forces to the U.S. Cavalry. In his surrender speech, Chief Joseph concluded, Hear me, my chiefs. I am tired. My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. Chief Joseph is an interesting guy. I have a primary source lesson on him if you're interested in learning more about him. Uh, you can find that at TeachersPayTeachers.com. He's certainly a remarkable-looking fellow. If you Google him, he, he, I mean, he's just one of those captivating Native figures. I would say Sitting Bull is also a, a very fascinating-looking fellow. Uh, you know, Joseph is his baptized name, which illustrates that he, was complete, he wasn't completely against adapting to Anglo-American culture. He displayed great diplomatic skill with both his people as well as the whites. He seemed reluctant to go to war and only chose armed conflict as a last resort. And he never gave up hope that he could appeal to whites' better nature. 
In a speech he gave in Washington, D.C. in 1879, he appealed to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence in an attempt to reach the whites and convince them that not just European Americans, but all people are entitled to those enlightened principles outlined in our founding documents. In 1900, Chief Joseph was allowed to go back to his homeland, and he even tried to convince white settlers to give his land back to his people. Well, you can imagine how that went over. In the end, Chief Joseph seemed not to let bitterness overtake him. Later on in life, he's quoted as saying, quote, Ever since the war, I have made up my mind to be friendly to the whites and to everybody, unquote. Well, there you have it, folks. The Shoshone and the Nez Pierce, two Native American groups that experienced tragedy and uh, horrific events and atrocities were happened or happened to them rather. And yet both groups also produced profound individuals that helped the very people that uh, caused the atrocities. And, and this, is a, this is something we should learn in our lives. This is something we can take in our lives. First of all, what's the point? The point is, yes, the United States government has done bad things. It has done bad things, and we should, and we should teach our children about those things. But the United States government is not the United States as a country. You and me, we make up the country. We decide what kind of country we're going to have. The government is always going to be corrupt. The government is always going to be about violence and oppression. That's what governments do. That's what governments are. But another thing is we don't have to let uh, tragedies define us. We're in this victimhood mentality. Oh, someone called me a name once and I just can't get over it. Okay, really? You can't get over it? You know... Think about the natives in this scenario. Look at the, I mean, there's, you're not experiencing what they experienced. And yet they produced some profound individuals, men and women, diplomats, translators, navigators. And even what happened to Chief Joseph, he still refused to let hate run his life. And that's something, boys and girls, we can all learn from. Until next time, here at Professor Liberty, we seek to educate, inspire, and restore. If you like this podcast, please give me a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to email the show, the email is professorliberty1776 at gmail.com. Please send me all your government, history, and economics questions there. You can also message me on Facebook. You can follow me on Parlor. Go throughout the land and proclaim liberty.